Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On May 11th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023, a day-long event for advisors featuring Fidelity's portfolio managers, subject matter experts, and thought leaders. Sessions ran both on stage in Vancouver to a live audience and from our Toronto studio for a crowd of thousands more online. Fidelity's global asset allocation team manages multi-asset class funds for Canadian investors, approximately $80 billion in assets. And today, we'll hear from portfolio managers David Wolf, David Tulk, and institutional portfolio manager Alain Colette in their Focus 2023 session, joining host Catherine Black. Among several other topics in today's 30-minute discussion, we'll hear the team's perspectives on inflation and rates, and how their experiences working at the Bank of Canada gives them an edge as an asset allocator. The panel expands on how protecting investors' capital is important, and they'll explain how their market outlook has affected positioning across their various funds. They will also take questions from the live audience. Please note, you will hear references to a few slides that were displayed to the room. And for more podcasts from Fidelity Canada's Focus 2023 event, please subscribe, as they'll be released in the coming days. Or, for full video replays of the event, available soon, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep. And investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the Upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. You all had the privilege of working at the Bank of Canada prior to joining Fidelity, which is a very cool experience. Um, With all the talk about inflation, about rising rates over the last 18 months, the Bank of Canada has really never been more prominent in all of our lives, the lives of Canadians, our advisors. So I would love if we could start with each of you briefly touching on what that experience was like for you and how did it give you an edge as an asset allocator now? David, let's start with you. Sure, thanks. So I served as advisor to the governor and secretary of the governing council of the Bank of Canada uh, under Mark Carney's governorship between 2009 and 2013. It was a fantastic job uh, involved in all kinds of things, uh, both informally advising Mark as well as I had responsibility for running the monetary policy deliberation process, uh, leading the work on the renewal of the inflation targeting framework, and I represented Canada on Uh, a number of uh, different international bodies. Uh, It was a great job. It was a rewarding job. It was also at times a very frustrating job, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm sitting here and not still in the public sector. Um, But I think it it really helped me in a lot of ways in terms of my current role running asset allocation funds. And I think the biggest is, so if you think about um, the policy interest rate, the risk-free rate, it affects the valuation of everything, stocks, bonds, currencies, real estate. I mean, not for nothing, I think every person on this stage today has talked about the Fed, right? So it affects everything. And I think there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding out there in terms of what central banks do and how they do it. And so if you understand what they do, because you've done it, 
Um, you have an edge in terms of understanding how that interest rate is likely to evolve and can adjust your asset allocation and response. Um, let me give you a quick example of how we put this into practice. So if you go back 18 months ago, uh, the Bank of Canada was still maintaining that interest rates were going to stay low for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the markets believed that. I didn't believe it. And the reason I didn't believe it is because I knew the Bank of Canada felt like it had to say that until it was damn sure it wanted to start raising rates. Because once you take that statement out, the market's going to price in all the tightenings. You want to be really sure you want it to do that. Um, so we were able to get ahead of the market in terms of pricing in that tightening, uh, selling bonds at better levels, taking off some of our Canadian dollar shorts, and it made a meaningful difference in terms of fund performance. Absolutely. So you're almost able to read between the lines because of that experience. You know, sometimes there aren't lines there. You know, everybody wants to, oh, the Fed means this. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> David Talk, uh, touch on your experience. Yeah, so for me, it was my first job um, out of school. And when you learn economics or study economics, you realize that it's it's a language. It's something that impacts all of us, just as interest rates impact all of us. But you need to figure out sort of what dialect to speak within that language. And central banking was something that was certainly of interest. And when you start at the bank as a junior analyst or as a a junior economist, one thing they really try to do is really drive home the importance of having a process. So the Bank of Canada, like all central banks, are very model-based. They have a a very strong framework uh, with which to understand the economy. And the economy is always evolving, so the framework evolves to a certain extent as well. But having everything rooted in a set of principles or in a, in a, in a philosophy and a process is really the most important discipline I think you can create. So learning that from a very formative stage in my career uh, made it really easy to take those principles and apply it to investing. So for those that have heard us talk uh, as a team before, you know that we root all of our asset allocation decisions in the four pillars. So you heard other portfolio managers speak of their four or five step process. And our four pillars uh, are rooted in the macro. So again, wanting to understand what the macro environment is signaling to us. But we also have tremendous resources from a bottom up perspective. So listening to all the analysts and, and our sub portfolio managers who are meeting with companies, scraping together a bunch of anecdotes to help augment our top-down view of the world. That's another important uh, input. And then we think about valuation and sentiment. So, you know, the market uh, has valuations, lots of different ways you can measure those. Uh, Those aren't necessarily timing tools, but they're definitely uh, tools for us to gauge the relative uh, cheapness or expensiveness of a given asset class. And what helps when you run a multi-asset class portfolio is that you don't just look at the equity market in a vacuum. You can compare the equity market to other asset classes, and then that relative valuation can help inform your decisions. And then quickly, just on sentiment, uh, everybody I think knows that we're the contrarian type of, of thinkers. So when there's a big theme that's expressed and momentum is carrying it to one side of uh, the distribution, our tendency is to tend to lean against that. So we want to find out where the market's vulnerable, what's the bias in the market, and tend to lean against that through time. And and that process, I mean, in good times, you almost don't think about it because everything's working. But where a process really shines is in the more challenging market environment so that you always test your assumptions going into a given decision and having that framework that doesn't change mm-hmm. through time. That's a really important step for me. And that's something that the Bank of Canada uh, was really important in helping me develop. Absolutely. Especially early on in your career, understanding the process to facilitate and execute upon those pillars is very key. 
Love it. Elon, how about you? Yeah, just really briefly. I mean, I would sort of echo what my, my colleague said. I went to I went to the bank immediately after graduate school at SFU up on uh, Burnaby Mountain. He's a Mountain. local, everyone. Yeah, and, um, and again, the, the rigorous uh, sort of process and framework that is instilled in you. I mean, in many ways, the Bank of Canada is, was the finishing school <laughs> for economists, right? At least when the way I joined and, and, and David uh, Talk joined as well, right? So we had learned all of the textbook material, but now this was actually application. Um, after the Bank of Canada, I went to Bloomberg, Bloomberg News, where I learned how to translate all of that economics into English, um, you know, for people who actually want to understand it. Uh, and so that's been, that's been helpful in my role. And I mean, we'll see you for the next 20 minutes if we succeed. So maybe Bloomberg will also help you for today. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we'll see if we can resonate that. Um, let's translate over this experience to Fidelity and what you all do today. So Elon, perhaps just remind our advisors, the global asset allocation team is responsible for a lot. What is that? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as I, as we mentioned, the time at the Bank of Canada was really, um, sort of important in, in developing that, that rigor and that framework. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the ways we can think about that right now is in, ter in, that, in terms of that question of what do we actually do? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we manage, our team manages the multi-asset class funds for Canadian investors. That's roughly $80 billion in assets. And while we aren't picking individual stocks or credits, we are looking across Fidelity globally and picking managers, right? Many of whom you've, you've heard from today. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're combining them in such a way, in a thoughtful manner to create a wide range of funds for every type of investor. Um, and I think, uh, you know, while that sounds interesting, the real question is, does it work? Mm -hmm. And that's what this chart here shows. So the chart we're looking at right here shows um, in gray the cumulative return in the TSX composite, right, our, our Canadian benchmark. The um, orange line is the Canadian equity sleeve of our global balance portfolio, portfolio that managed portfolio that many of you will be familiar with. And then every other line are the building block managers that we use in our funds over that period of time. Um, again, this is a really important and a brand new chart that we're just introducing today. And the main takeaway from this chart is, uh, you know, the importance of diversification, right? Mm -hmm. And so what this chart is attempting to show is there is variation amongst these lines, these underlying building block uh, managers. They will all win over time. They have all won over time, but they won't necessarily win at the same time, right? And so that divergence is important. Uh, and I think what it shows is the process that we, that we have by combining managers of, of different values and different uh, styles, um, you know, sorry, different sectors and different styles results in a smoother ride for the end investor and uh, excess return over the benchmark. Absolutely. And I think we've heard that here today. I mean, most of the managers represented even on this screen have spoken today and exactly. they all having various perspectives uh, and viewpoints. So really allowing for that key diversification, which is excellent. You have a new white paper out, five charts, five questions, or five questions, five charts, the other way around. Um, really great. If you would like a copy of it, please reach out to your sales team. They can get you one. Um, last quarter, though, you had answered 15 of your most frequently asked. This is five more. And I know it plays a lot into our discussion today. So, David Talk, I'm going to ask you the next point. What's your outlook at this point? And given that outlook, how are you positioned? That's a great way to get into the, uh, the conversation on the practical application side. So, uh, David Wolf touched on this briefly as well, that a lot of the presenters on stage today have talked about the Fed. And I think that question around central banks continues to be 
I think one of the major uncertainties that the market is trying to wrestle with, and one of the main determinants of, I think, how the rest of this year will end up performing from a asset return perspective. And really what the essence of the story is, what is the macro environment telling us right now? So obviously we're seeing inflation uh, peak, we've seen it come down, and you've heard a range of opinions as to what ski slope uh, inflation is ongoing, is going on down further from here. So our sense ultimately, I think is, we're probably still on that green slope. So the more gradual uh, reduction in inflation to a point where I don't think central banks will have the luxury of being able to um, cut interest rates. And that is a view that is not really priced in markets right now. Uh, so we heard uh, certainly from Jeff talking about the bond market in the sense that there are a number of cuts priced by the end of the year. The equity market in terms of their melt up that we've seen recently you know, is premised to a certain degree on maybe the soft landing type of scenario. And I don't think either of those events are the most likely. Uh, and just to try to animate that point uh, with a chart. So uh, this goes back to our economic modeling days where uh, in the blue line, what you see is, a, is the Fed's policy rate. And in the green line is basically a model derived estimate of where the Fed funds rate should be given conditions in the economy. And specifically, and I won't go into a tremendous detail, but it basically says that if you look at where inflation sits today relative to the Fed's target and where the unemployment rate sits today relative to its target, the policy rate should be a lot higher. And you can quibble over the magnitude, uh, but the upshot, I think, ultimately, is that the U.S. economy and the Canadian economy as well still requires fairly tight policy. And that's just not going to show up in terms of how the market views uh, the economy unfolding. So the the notion of an economy being premised on uh, interest rates falling, the Fed running to the rescue at the first sign of economic weakness, I just, again, don't think that that is the most likely outcome. So the macro backdrop generally is you know, fairly concerning to us, and it continues to be concerning. And uh, that, from an asset allocation perspective, really drives the theme of, of still being defensive. Uh, I certainly personally wish I had the optimism of Mark Schmel in saying you want to be offense all the time. Uh, but for the type of funds that we manage where it's a core solution and you want to really hedge all of the risks, our feeling is that it's still prudent to remain defensive. I know David Wolf will talk about some of the specific ways in which we've taken our defensive positioning. But broadly speaking, you know, we still want to appreciate the downside that is likely to emerge uh, in the earnings environment. We still want to be uh, conscious of the fact that inflation is not likely to fall to a level where central banks will feel ultimately comfortable. And only when there is real economic damage will that central bank response come into action. And, I, and until that time, I think you still need to position yourself from an asset allocation perspective with an eye towards being defensive. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Protecting investors' capital is also very exciting, right? We need to be doing that. So uh, not always a Mark Schmale story, but still a great one. David Wolf, um, how are these sweet concerns being reflected in the portfolio right now? Yeah, so as, as David talked about, um, we do want to be defensive uh, in our asset allocation. We do think the macro is concerning. We think there's a recession coming. How big, don't know. When, don't know. But uh, the, the environment is clearly conducive to that. And that's what the central banks want to cause. I mean, I don't say that publicly, but 
to get inflation down, you need slack, and you get slack, you need a recession, and we'll see how that goes. But pending that, um, we want to be relatively defensive in the portfolio. So then the question becomes, as an asset allocator, how do you do that? And it's not as an equity manager would do is to buy defensive stocks, because we don't do that. And uh, as you heard, they're relatively expensive anyhow. We do have three options. So the first is just to sell equities generally, mm-hmm. right? So to reduce our, our equity weightings. We tend not to want to do that, even when we want to be defensive. A couple of reasons for that. One, you're, you're fighting the general tendency of equities to go up, uh, the risk premium associated with it, which means that you have to get your timing right to make that work, and nobody's going to be very good at timing, right kind of thing. Uh, we also, we don't just buy equity indexes. We have money with Dan, with Don, with Ramona, with Hugo coming up, et cetera. These are active managers that have shown themselves to be very good at navigating difficult environments. Mm -hmm. So we'd rather keep the capital with them and let them do their thing in terms of picking their way through uh, a difficult spot. Um, Second way we can play defense is to buy bonds, so add duration. Um, That's sort of the classic asset allocation playbook in a sense, recession coming, you buy bonds. Um, We've done a bit of that, probably not as much as others have and and not as much as some of our competitors. And the view I'm going to give is a little bit different from, from Jeff and Stacey's this morning, and we have robust debates, shall we say, within the team. We're here for um, our perspectives. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, I mean, from my perspective, bonds, the only way bonds are really going to work is if you ultimately get an easing in monetary policy. And maybe we do, maybe we don't. But it's not even clear to me that the, the Fed and the Bank of Canada are completely finished tightening. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear to them that they're finished tightening. Maybe they are and maybe they're not. But you, you need to be able to see the other side to really be confident in, in bond market returns. Um, and then the other I- issue is the correlation, and this, this has to do with this chart here. So we all know correlation stocks bonds turned positive last year, and that's the green line and the blue line in the bottom that went down together, went up together. Um, so bonds were not a good hedge to stocks. We think we understand why that happened. It's basically because inflation volatility came back, which you didn't have for 30 years, and you have now, and that gives you the positive correlation. Um, that may be fraying a little bit, but it's hard to imagine that you go back to a really negative correlation in an environment where inflation, regardless of your view on it, the volatility is still not zero the way it was for, for many years. So, you know, Jeff and Stacey may be right. We may return to a negative correlation. Uh, bond market returns may be even juiced up beyond the, the better mm-hmm. yields at this point. But as an asset allocator, we actually don't have to rely on that because we have a third option to diversify, and that's in currency. And so, again, we look at the chart. So the light blue line above the bar is the U.S. dollar versus the Canadian dollar. And you can see that has remained a reliable diversifier. So basically, when stocks went down and bonds went down, U.S. dollar went up and vice versa. And again, we understand that because Canadian dollar is a pretty cyclical currency. And the U.S. dollar is where people go in times of stress, mm-hmm. right? So we expect that correlation between the U.S. dollar and stocks to keep up. And that, to us, is a more reliable way of playing defense. So we still have money with our equity managers, and they're doing their thing. We still have plenty of money with our bond managers, and they're doing their thing. And the way that we've chosen to manage risk for the portfolios as a whole is primarily with currency in terms of being overweight. US dollars. But interesting to see that you have many levers that you can pull, whether it's selling equities, leaning on the managers, buying bonds, using currency. So lots of, you know, tools in your toolbox, essentially. We're diversified in our diversification. You are. You're (laughs) diversified. Exactly. Double diversified. I love it. Uh, Elon, this all sounds great and it paints a beautiful story, but where could 
you, we potentially be wrong? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I think, um, really, I think every single answer to every question today could have been, it depends on the path of inflation. I really look forward to going back to the world in which I'm not talking about inflation as much, right? <laughs> when we can basically forget about it. But everything, you know, everything, as we know, everything has become far more expensive. We had inflation rates of 8% and 9% um, in Canada and in the U.S. I mean, even socks got more expensive. So, uh, yeah, uh, so you That's know, everything, why you don't have anything, everything, right? <laughs> everything got a lot more expensive, uh, as we know. But I mean, the question is really, where are we now? So David Wolf mentioned why we care. Why we care is because inflation and inf inflation volatility eroded the negative correlation between stocks and bonds that these multi-asset class portfolios are built upon. Um, so it really matters what the path of inflation is going forward. Um, and where we, where we are right now, to, to be honest, is not a great spot. I would love to say that the sharp decline in inflation that we've observed from the 8% down to the 4% will continue right back down to 2%. But when you look into the data, as I still do every month in detail, that is going to be very difficult for uh, for the data to to basically continue that trend. And so what the chart that we're looking at here is put together by um, one of the researchers that we work with on our asset allocation research team in Boston, actually the gentleman who replaced me on that research team, um, but we'll still use this chart. And, um, <laughs> and what it shows is, is it shows the contribution from two different buckets on what's affecting inflation, the persistent inflation or the transitory inflation. Again, the transitory inflation, think of things like, you know, in the pandemic when we were buying all of the air fryers and all of the Pelotons, <laughs> that's the green line. Guilty. Right, right, that's the green line. The good compliments, but that, that's the green line. Though, you know, that factor has faded. Right? Goods prices are now inflating at their pre-COVID level, roughly at their pre-COVID level. But what is not uh, slowed at all are service, service prices. Um, we can get into a lot of detail here, but very briefly, the reason service prices matter is, number one, they're three quarters of the underlying inflation pie. Right? So it's, it's interesting that the price of the things that you're buying in Costco is going up and down, but really we don't care. It matters more what the price of services are. And two, the reason service prices are inflating at such a strong rate is because the price of the people doing the service, the wage growth of the people doing the service, is, remains very strong. And it remains very strong because the labor market is too tight. Right? So the labor market is, except, is exceptionally tight. It remains very tight. We've seen basically no cracks in the labor market in both Canada and the U.S. at all. Um, and our view is until, uh, you know, rates will remain elevated until you see that response in the economy to affect change in the labor market, which will affect change in wages, which will affect change in the service, in service prices. There are long lags to that. And for that reason, we remain overweight the asset classes in our portfolios that protect investors against inflation. Uh, commodities is at the top of that list, for Excellent. example. This has been a very uplifting conversation. Um, I'm told it's a sunny day outside these doors. Uh, so behind every dark cloud, there always is a ray of sunshine, which I'm looking forward to getting to. But David Talk, please tell me, where are you optimistic? There's gotta be, there's gotta be that ray. I mean, it's difficult asking Eeyore to be a thief, but <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so yeah, so in the spirit of balance and diversification, we have small pockets of offense in addition to the overall theme of defensiveness. And this is where that notion of relative valuations and relative economic performance um, really shines. And we have the luxury from where we sit 
to be able to differentiate across uh, those different regions. So when we think of our, our regional equity allocations, so we have uh, allocations to Canada, the US, EFI, and emerging markets, and we're generally underweight Canada. That's a story I think we can certainly get into in more detail. Um, we're somewhat cautious on the US and on Europe as well, but where we have a little bit more relative optimism is on emerging markets. And emerging markets, from our perspective, you know, are still very tightly bound to the rest of the economy. So you can think of a very sort of thick elastic that binds emerging markets to the rest of the world. But occasionally in certain cycles, you can see the opportunity for a bit of relative outperformance. And I think that still holds true for emerging markets today. Uh, so when we think about the business cycle framework, emerging markets are generally a little bit more advanced through their business cycle. So they're starting to emerge from recession. You're seeing policy stimulus in a number of cases as well. And that's starting to create a little bit more positive economic momentum. And again, emerging markets can't really separate themselves from the slowing that's happening in the rest of the economy. But I think there are some unique aspects to the current cycle that do provide a bit more of a tailwind into that region. And then also through our process, when you think about relative valuation, and that's really what um, the slide in front of you is looking at, uh, emerging markets on a relative basis, and, and EFI to a certain degree as well, um, are comparatively cheap. So they're cheap relative to the United States. You can see they're pretty cheap relative to their own history as well. And uh, they might, you know, you, and that's where you can say that even if you think the overall equity market can be expensive, there are pockets within that that we want to be sensitive to and allocate towards um, that are less expensive, and emerging markets would be an example of that. So that's one of the regional overweights that we have um, expressed across a number of our funds. Um, the second pocket of optimism um, is really a credit to... I didn't know I was getting two pockets. Oh, you are. Yeah. I'm quite excited about that. One, and you get the first, you get to pay for the second one. Okay. The first one was for free. Um, is, is a credit to all of our underlying managers. So again, as you've heard from a lot of uh, the, our colleagues that have spoken on stage, you know, their ability to do security selection is phenomenal. So they have an army of researchers behind the scenes that are able to help uh, uncover a lot of rocks and bring really good, compelling stories to the portfolios on a security by security basis. And one of the areas that that's most true is within the credit space. Um, so we have out of benchmark allocations into a number of plus sectors, so emerging market debt, both in hard dollars as well as well as local currency, high yield, a little bit of floating rate, convertible. So Adam is, is one of our building block managers. And we want to have those exposures, even if there's concerns around the beta over the overall market, because we're of the view that their ability to choose securities based on the research can still add a lot of value into the portfolios. So that's another area where we've stuck ourselves out in a little bit more of an optimistic fashion uh, to try to calibrate the degree of overall positioning where defensiveness is still the name of the game, but we want to have pockets that can anticipate what the other side of the valley looks like and when things start to look better. Absolutely, so emerging markets, credit, that's great uh, exposure to essentially offset the defensive. You mentioned being underweight Canada a bit. David Wolf, I'm going to ask if that optimism carries over how it feels into the underweight, can you expand on that? Sure, um, so when we're here a year ago, uh, and hopefully a lot of folks were, were with us a year ago, uh, I talked pretty pessimistically about Canada and and the challenge that was going to be posed to the economy from the combination of really high household debt and sharply rising interest rates, and thought that it was going to be, you know, potentially an extreme event for Canada. Mm -hmm. um, 
this chart that you see sort of puts a picture to why we thought that. And so what we have here is about a little under 50 years of history. The green is just GDP growth, economy going up and down. The blue is the relative cost of servicing a mortgage. And what we've done is advanced it and flipped it. And the relationship, and you can see the correlation is very strong, makes sense because when those costs go up, when it costs people more to service their mortgage, rates are up, debts are high, et cetera, there's less money left over for everything else. And the economy is going to tend to shrink. Looking at that chart, the degree to which those costs have gone up would have suggested a pretty dramatic um, recession in Canada. Um, we've had some slowdown, but we certainly haven't had a, a dramatic recession. So uh, the question becomes, why is that? And I think there, there are a few reasons. One, um, immigration, which we knew was going to be a, a tailwind, has been much stronger than we would have thought. Uh, population has gone up by about a million, uh, so roughly double what was projected. Um, I think, uh, and Dan touched on this earlier, the excess savings was probably underestimated, both the excess savings that had been built up during the pandemic, as well as the savings in the older generations that were able to be transferred to younger generations to fill uh, some of the gap. Um, we've had a lot of bank forbearance, so you know, a lot of mortgages have had to go from 30 years to 50, 60, 70, 80 year amortizations, which <laughs> doesn't help, it just kicks the can down the road, but it helps in the near term. Um, and I think there's a psychology element as well, that it's just hard to get rid of that entrenched psychology that real estate always goes up. Um, so all of these things, I think, are reason to be optimistic in the near term. None of them really solve the longer term problem that both housing and all of the debt taken on against it uh, are unaffordable mm -hmm. at this stage. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, that near term resiliency, in a sense, makes it worse, because the more resilient the economy is, the more the Bank of Canada is going to have to raise interest rates to slow it down and get inflation out, and the worse that makes the affordability issue down the line. So, you know, I, I can't say I've become a huge optimist in terms of the long-term outlook uh, for Canadian economy, Canadian assets, but the shorter-term outlook, again, the Canadian economy has been more resilient, certainly, than I would have thought, and there are reasons to believe that it may remain so for a while. And one of the things that we've taken account of there is to make sure that we're sizing our Canadian underweight appropriately. So I talked about the defensive nature of, of the US dollar. We want to have that defense, but if Canadian interest rates are going to go up again, then that's going to help the Canadian dollars. We want to make sure that we're not over our skis in terms of that, that position. So we have only a couple minutes left. Perhaps, you know, what are you focusing on for the remainder of the year? We know the position, we know some optimism. Are there anything, anything that's being missed that you'd like to share today? Um, so I think we're always challenging our views for where are we going to be wrong. And, and you know, we're all, all of us are used to being wrong some of the time. We try to minimize it, but, you know, it's, it's part of the game. And one of the things that we're trying to challenge is, so everybody except for Mark Schmell has the view that we're going into recession. And I think we, you know, that very we want to be, <laughs> you know, but it, it's, it's not just us. I mean, the market yeah. as a whole, you talk to anyone, you talk to our competitors, you know, we see a lot of this in the United States and Canada. This is so telegraphed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so everybody thinks inflation's peaked, going down, the Fed's going to end up cutting, we're going to have a recession, but then there's going to be another side, et cetera. So how is all of that wrong? Mm -hmm. One way all of that would be wrong in a really good way that you can have inflation down, the Fed cut, and not have a recession, is if we have a boom in productivity in the economy. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of candidates for that, to be fair. So AI that Mark talked about is one that could 
you know, revolutionize the way businesses operate. We're not sure, but it could. The other one that I think a lot about, we've been working with our secular team, is we all work differently than we did five years ago, yeah. right? So the pandemic basically broke a hundred year model of you show up nine to five, Monday to Friday to work. People, not everyone certainly, but a lot of folks now have a lot more flexibility, can be a lot more efficient. And we may learn, you know, 10, 20 years from now that that change in model really accelerated an improvement in the way the economy operated. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, you can get growth in the economy, you can get growth in earnings, and you can have low and stable inflation, and markets are going to rip. Um, and that's not impossible. So we're doing a lot of work, again, challenging our views. And actually, that's one that I wouldn't mind being wrong with my defense. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we really do get that, that boost from productivity and markets can rip, I think everybody in the room will be happy. And it's a theory that sounds uh, exciting if it did happen, so. It would be great. I mean, again, it, with these kind of generational things, you never know until long after the fact, mm -hmm. but we have to start thinking about them in advance because that's how we're, we're going to make a difference for investors. Mm -hmm. David, Elon, anything else to add? Any future where I can wear sweatpants more often? <laughs> we were talking about that. Putting on future. some real pants is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, Elon. Yeah, no, I, I would echo that. I mean, it's exciting. It's very, very hard to mm -hmm. forecast productivity booms. It's easier to say, like, I told you, I told you that would happen sort of in 10 years, mm -hmm. um, but it would be, it would solve a lot of our problems. It would solve a lot of our problems. Excellent. Well, this was an informative discussion. Great to see you all. Great to understand where you're positioned and your current outlook. With that, thank you, David, David, and Elon. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.